Blackstar Radio on this Wednesday morning. On the phone with me now, Jeff McMullen. He has been a journalist on the ABC Foreign Correspondent, a reporter for Four Corners, 60 Minutes, and is a man that's very, very passionate about Indigenous affairs. Jeff, look, thanks for the time. Good to be on with you. Mate, you've had a long and extensive career. This COVID-19, this virus that is affecting so many people, you've, I believe, seen similar things before. I have seen the pattern uh, earlier in my life of the crossover of animal viruses and then the mutation as these pandemics are created. If we go back to our grandfather and grandmother's era, the stories that my grandfather passed on were, as they all came back from World War I, the second devastation was that so-called Spanish flu, which had gone through the camps The military soldiers themselves were part of the pathway for that virus. And it was global and it came in waves. And if you read your Australian history, you'll see it wasn't just the first wave. The second and third in some parts of the world uh, caused that devastation. So I started with a family story. But as a journalist, I was fascinated that in Africa, in Asia, and even here in Australia we were seeing these crossover viruses. So about 30 years ago, I filmed with the CSIRO's brightest scientists, and we looked at all of the issues, live animal markets, proximity to wild animals, human populations becoming denser, and then how this occurs as viruses that seem to live comfortably in wild species become deadly to us when they cross over one of those many bridges. And it's happened before. We've been very slow to learn the lessons from that history. I think part of those, when we take a look at our recent history, of course, as you were saying, the Spanish flu, that lasted over three years. In recent history, we're looking at Ebola, we're looking at SARS as two very recent indications of animal-to-human and then human-to-human transference. What I learned from the scientists all those years ago, and I've stayed on the subject because it is connected to how humans live, the farming pattern, the dense population of urban living all over the world, and then the release of viruses from the wild. So I saw in the 1970s while filming for the ABC with David Brill, uh, a legendary war cameraman, We were looking at the Brazilian commandos who were terrorising the First Nations people in the Amazon, and we heard about the release of viruses from the jungle clearing. So if you rapidly reduce rainforest, whether it's in the Amazon, far north Queensland, or in Papua New Guinea, you see diseases created by the contact of people coming into face-to-face with those viruses that were comfortable in that other environment. Sometimes it may be the animal that brings that out of the wild, but in other cases it is a little more mysterious. So the CSIRO team was looking at that pattern and we actually went to a little island on the south coast of New South Wales with a fairy penguin colony. And one of those scientists pointed out to me that the avian flus, the so-called bird flu and so on, 
are easily carried by many creatures that are comfortable with the virus and don't seem to be affected like we are, but in the crossover exposure. So if certain animals are eaten, if the disease through their droppings is conveyed, uh, we know of what's happened with bats, but we still really haven't heeded the bigger lesson, I think, that Aboriginal custodians have spoken of for many years, that if we disrupt the natural pattern, then we pay a very terrible price. And I think that's the learning that we're still to try to draw from this emergence of coronavirus in COVID-19, is that we can't live the way we are without understanding that we are self-creating perhaps the biggest threat to the human species itself. So you are looking at land clearing, you're looking at uh, urban sprawl and everything else. Plus also, I believe, the wet markets, the consumption of exotic wild animals. In China, they say, OK, they're a delicacy, but they haven't been for all that long, only about 100 years or so, isn't it? Well, that's often the cultural explanation that countries put forward for practices that the rest of the world will say, well, why are you doing that? So we saw this with the justification for so-called scientific whaling, where if you ask most Japanese people, they were not craving a good feed of whale. It was an introduced protein that was brought in in very recently in their history. In other parts of the world, things have been hunted that the collective majority might say is brutally unnecessary, but certain populations will cull things because they've come to see that as part of their way of dominating those particular species. So that's the older story, Mark, I think, is that humans in too many places, including Australia, where we are responsible in the last two centuries for eliminating more species than just about any country on Earth, that's a sorry record of our own, and I think we've got to see it in that context. But your point about the animal markets, this came up when the Prime Minister was asked in the last 24 hours about the possible reopening of the market in China, the one that allegedly this virus started in that area, and he said that he found that really, really difficult to understand. And I think that will be the reaction around the world. Do we have to farm and sell and kill and prepare what we eat in the same way when the wisest minds, the custodians of the earth, are telling us this is dangerous living? I think clearly that is another aspect that change is required, but sensibly, not blaming people who have come to see that as normal, but trying to explain that we all have to change. And we will need to do this as a human family or it won't succeed. We'll simply have pockets of danger erupting in one part of one continent. And then, of course, they're so quickly conveyed now, even quicker than in our grandparents' age. It's not a ship coming back from the World War One. It's an airliner and it's here in a matter of hours from those parts of the world where the virus has travelled from. How do you think that we got SARS, which was known as COVID-2, it was discovered in 2002, and now we've got COVID-19, we've got 17 years between it. Why do you think it is so more widespread and so more virulent? The 
Science is not yet clear, really, that we can definitively say that. We can't really explain why it is so more deadly, more infectious. And I think that's a humbling admission that as clever as we are to understand the emergence in the general sense of the pattern, the peculiar thing about viruses is the way they mutate, the way they develop several strains. It can happen very early, as appears to be the case with COVID-19. We had reports over the weekend that there were possibly two strains uh, and that the early strain was more deadly. But that's early research and it's qualified by the fact that it's coming from one place and not yet a global assessment. But I don't think we really understand enough about either the bridge, the exact triggers, because I keep going back to history, the Spanish flu, it's still disputed as to what happened in 1917, 1918 and 1919. That particular epidemic is contested as bitterly today as it was during the war years and in the aftermath. Because you usually find that some nation has had a prelude to the major outbreak. So we don't yet clearly know whether before this was all reported, before last Christmas, exactly what was going on in that region of China. Was there some other factor apart from the ones that were now reported? It's wise to say we don't fully know the story of COVID-19. We may never fully understand it, but we know enough about it to see that we have to change and we have to live with that awesome respect for Mother Nature. We certainly do. And I'll probably ask you just one more question, if I could there, Jeff, and that is your years of reporting, you have seen disease, you've seen death and destruction around the world. The Indigenous populations of Australia were one step ahead of the federal government in isolating themselves. But after this isolation is over and when it is deemed safe to do so, can you ever really see the human population or even the Australian population going back the way we were? Look, I'm the patron of AIDA, the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, after being involved with them for more than two decades. And I have a huge respect for the way Indigenous doctors, health organisations across the country very quickly helped us understand why certain vulnerable groups have to be really given strength and protection and everything they ask for at difficult times. It's what we do with our elders, with our oldest and most vulnerable people. We have to see that in these situations, it's not only about isolation, it's tending to the needs that we have neglected through so many other years. The nutrition, the overcrowded housing, the social determinants in general will determine the person's ability to be able to handle these health threats. I hope there is an awakening in this community spirit that is stirring in Australia. I mean, forget the rat bags and the outbreaks of madness that you see here too. Overwhelmingly, people have responded wisely and I think with a great spirit, and that is a unifying force that we should use to push on to make sure that every home in Australia really has the essential protection and health care to 
take care of all of our brothers and sisters and our children and our old people. In this nation, when you look how well we are handling this crisis at this hour, we should also sense that our greatest protection is in fact to strengthen the health and well-being and longevity of all of our people. If we do that collectively, that will be something that comes out of this and the spirit carries us in that direction. We've got a chance. I don't think it's a time to tear one another apart or to focus only on those outbreaks of bad behaviour. I think overwhelmingly we've got an opportunity to do better. And I know the Aboriginal doctors from the Nacho, from AIDA, and in every small health clinic and regional operation around the country are really working so hard to make sure that First Peoples actually for once are given the protection that is their deserved. Jeff, thank you so much for your insight there. And I think I, amongst many, miss having you on the television. Are you ever going to come back? Well, I'm still writing. I'm still working. My work really for many years now has been almost totally with Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, South Sea Islanders. It's not really important that people know what I'm up to. You know, there's another generation of storytellers that does what my group used to do, and I wish them very well in it. But I share what I know with a lot of younger people, but I'm happiest working with the mob. Thanks very much, Jeff. You have a great day. All the best, Mark. Thanks for the call. That is Jeff McMullen, the, I suppose, television presenter extraordinaire, and his thoughts of COVID-19.